LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, how to have the perfect morning. When you arise in the morning, think of what a precious privilege it is to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy, to love. Marcus Aurelius wrote those words almost 2,000 years ago at the height of the Roman Empire. These days, few of us are taking his wise counsel. We arise in the morning to the sound of and reach bleary-eyed for our phones. Then we scroll through the day's gloomy headlines, tap out frantic replies to the astonishing number of emails and slacks and text messages that accumulated while we slept. We don't begin our days by thinking what a precious privilege it is to be alive. We begin all too often with the crescendo of cortisol, which is to say stress. And here's the thing about that morning routine. Research shows that people who start the day in a bad mood anxious, frazzled, exhausted before they've even done anything, those people are much more likely to finish the day in a bad mood. The way you spend your morning, the thoughts and feelings you bring online, sticks with you long after you've gotten out of bed. So what can we do to start our mornings on the right foot? The answer can be found in a new book called Rise and Shine, How to Transform Your Life Morning by Morning by Kate and Toby Oliver. Brother and sister by birth, therapist by training, Kate and Toby have written an inspiring and actionable guide to creating a morning routine that will boost your mental, emotional, and physical well-being and set you up for a highly productive, memorable day. The 19th century American clergyman Henry Ward Beecher said, the first hour of the morning is the rudder of the day. I love that. Today on the show, we'll learn how to make the most of that first hour how to steer your day in the right direction. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Kate and Toby Oliver, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you so much, Rufus. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, I am absolutely convinced by what I take to be the core thesis of your book, Rise and Shine, which is that if we can really nail our mornings, improve our mornings with ever better rituals, we can transform our days and by extension, our lives. And I, I've sort of happened upon this through my own process of trial and error, but I have come to think that mornings are sacred. I think of it as a beach in the morning without footprints. It's wiped clean by the ocean overnight. And to some degree, I think this is neurologically true of what sleep does for us, right? That, mm-hmm. that we know sleep is so essential to our cognition, to our mood. When we sleep, our brains are consolidating memories. 
They're packaging up and discarding toxins. And we even generate creative ideas and problem solve in our sleep. And so we wake up in the morning and that first hour is so precious. And what we do with it is so important. Mm -hmm. And all too often, we're just surrendering to the chaos that's inside of our phones, the chaos of the world that comes at us through all these streams. And that turns out to be a tragic mistake, I think, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. a big opportunity to really focus on that first hour. I love that metaphor of the, the beach. And I often think of it that the day is, a, is a, like a chariot. And, you know, we, mm. we can just wake up and throw ourselves into the chariot and let the horses just go wherever they want and chaos normally ensues. And we get to the end of the day and we think, how did I end up here? This is not what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be. Or we can take a moment, we can take hold of the reins, we can think, where do I want to go? How do I want to travel? And we can direct them. And I think you say that there's research showing that the mood you begin the day in tends to carry through. I mean, we've known this. We've, we've always had sayings like somebody got out of bed on the wrong side. Yeah. We kind of know it experientially, but there was a fascinating piece of research done by Rothbard and Wilk um, where they looked at people working within call centers and they looked at, um, they measured their mood and their state first thing in the morning. And then they um, took various measures throughout the day. And what they found was that those who started the day sort of feeling happy and calm tended to stay that way. But what, that what also happened was it affected the way that they perceived their interactions with customers. So they tended to say that they'd had really positive interactions with customers, that they'd enjoyed them, because we don't actually see things as they are. We see things as we are. So if we're in a good mood, we perceive things more positively. We look at it through, you know, rose-tinted glasses. And so they felt more positive as their day progressed. Those who started off in a bad mood, put simply, basically were probably a bit more grumpy in their interactions with their colleagues, with customers. They said that those interactions were not good and their moods actually tended to worsen. But also they took more breaks. They were less productive. So there's a real piece of empirical evidence. And then if we think that that effect is amplified by what we now understand around emotional contagion and the fact that our mood rubs off on others around us, it's not only ourselves that we're affecting through the way that we're feeling and the way that we're being, it's also those who we care about or don't care about, but the others who come into interaction with us throughout the day. So there's a big gain in transforming not only our own lives, but actually helping to improve the lives of others around us as well. Well, let's talk about how to plan the perfect morning or how to construct the perfect morning. I think you begin with the alarm clock. For many people, this is the beginning of the day. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's so interesting. So many of the clients that I work with, when I talk to them about how they start their days, and they'll say, the alarm on my phone goes off. And I'll say, what do you do next? And it's usually one of two things. I hit snooze, and then I hit snooze again and again and again. So you set yourself up for a great pattern of procrastination <laughs> and resistance. Or they say, I turn my alarm off, and then I check my messages, I check my social feeds, I check the news feeds, and I say, how does that make you feel? And they say, terrible. And so, one of the big things I often say is get yourself an alarm clock, an old fashioned alarm clock that is not your phone. 
yes, it's great that phones have all these devices on, but we don't have to use them. My aspiration is to not wake up to an alarm. It took me, I'm embarrassed to say, a couple decades to figure out that the only way to get a really full night's sleep and get up early and feel good is to go to bed earlier. I was I was very resistant. <laughs> yeah, I know sure it's revolutionary, yeah. isn't it? It, 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 it? It's so counterintuitive that this yeah. is necessary, but I, I finally, after 20 years, figured this out. And actually, you all point out that for most people, uh, the hormone melatonin, which regulates sleep, peaks around 11 p.m. Yeah, you know that can be a good goal. Yes, but what I find myself doing is setting an alarm but late enough so that I hope to naturally wake up before the alarm goes off because I prefer that feeling of sleeping as long as I can. But then because the alarm is set, I know that if I haven't heard it, I have permission to roll over (laughs) and try to get some more sleep, right? Well, I think there's a big difference, isn't there? Because there's a big difference between setting an intention, which is an alarm that says I should be up at this time, and then breaking that intention when you when it goes off by putting it on snooze and you wake up a bit earlier and thinking, actually, no, I can allow myself a little more time. Psychologically, that's a very different thing. Yeah. All right. So we're now we're up. Kate and Toby, we've bounced out of bed. And what next? Are we a glass of water? Are we, we going to make the bed? What do we do next? I think both of us would say water so that you, you know, you rehydrate. We know that when we wake up in the morning, we are dehydrated because we've lost moisture through perspiration and through respiration. So however much we may have drunk before going to bed, we will be dehydrated. And we know that the body and especially the brain needs to be hydrated to function effectively and to have a positive mindset and a positive mood. So something as simple as drinking, I know can have really profound effects. I was talking to a client this week who said, I found myself drinking more water throughout the day because I'm starting the day drinking some water. And I've remembered what you said about the importance of rehydration. And he said, I am going to the loo more, but I feel so much better. And this is someone who's older. And he said, I really noticed the, the difference. My joints aren't aching as much. My mind feels clearer. So yeah, it's a really simple thing to do. And often we'll say to people, if you can't do anything else, you can find time to drink a glass of water as you wake up. I think you said, then do we make the bed? I think it depends, Rufus, because there isn't a one size fits all. So some people might want to do more of their morning routine in bed. I think what we would suggest is that at the point you decide to exit your bed, <laughs> It's really helpful to then make your bed for a number of reasons. You may or may not do that next, though. Somehow I find that ambitious, making the bed, partly because my almost perfect wife is typically still in the Uh, bed, so I can't quite make it. Take it over. Well, I have done that. My husband did accuse me and say, what are you doing? Why are you making the bed? I'm still in it. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) which was fair enough. It was a subtle message, perhaps. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm already in this hypothetical morning we're sharing, aching for a cup of coffee. Yeah. And what I'm doing, I I do start with a glass of water, but I love the ritual of grinding the coffee beans, making Mm -hmm. the pot of coffee. I have read in your book, among other places, that you really want to wait like a half hour, ideally, before having that cup of coffee, I think. I'd say an hour. Sorry to an hour. About the research, the latest research from the Huberman lab is saying around an hour after waking to get the maximum benefits. Because what that helps is, as we talked about, you mentioned sort of melatonin rising in the evening, and obviously it then starts a decline. And at the same time, serotonin starts to increase. And 
it then is starting to peak mid-morning. And if we have caffeine too early, it's sort of, it's like pressing our foot on the gas pedal and accelerating too fast. And we can really disrupt that, um, that natural steady increase of serotonin. And so we get those crashes. So we can ride the wave by you combining the, the natural rise of serotonin with the ingestion of caffeine. So we, we're not saying no to caffeine. We're saying just use it maybe a little bit more intelligently and allow the body to come round before hitting it, you know, <laughs> with a sort of injection of energy. This is tough for me, Toby, because I, I, I'm already, I can smell the coffee. I'm already <laughs> aching for the coffee, but maybe I'm going to have a second cup of water. I have taken up the practice erratically, but now I'm, I'm really going to commit to it after reading your book of, of now pulling out a journal. And there are a couple different types of journaling, but let's start with free writing. What is free writing? So free writing is the act of starting with a blank page and then writing by hand, because the research shows that writing longhand with a pencil or a pen has more therapeutic benefits than typing. And it's just writing down your thoughts, your feelings, whatever is in your mind. It might be the remainders of a dream that you had. It might be just something that, that seems poetic. It might be something that seems really mundane. It doesn't matter. It's about writing without editing or censoring. You're not writing for anyone else. You're not even writing to reread it. You are just clearing the decks. It took me a while to warm up to this act. My first few sentences might be, I don't have anything in particular to say at the mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. But I know based on past experience that if I write, I may discover something. So I am now writing. Yes. And, you know, very consistently, I end up surprising myself and very often getting some real sort of interesting revelations that emerge. I love this line from Susan Sontag that you quote in the book. In the journal, I do not just express myself more openly than I could to any person. I create myself. Mm-hmm. Even though I only at this point do it once or twice a week, there is a, a kind of um, serenity about it. And, and there's also an intentionality, this process of giving yourself the time and space to be unrushed, yes. inhabit your own thoughts, and begin just through the act of writing to express intention and a kind of, you know, personal agency around mm -hmm. how you want to spend your day, who you are, yeah. you kind of take the steering wheel, right? Because it's so easy for us just to, just to fall into this reactive mode in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know about you, but I love free writing, that I find that there is such a huge difference between the writing I do in the morning upon waking and when I do free writing at any other time of the day, because I it doesn't feel as free later on in the day because things have happened that maybe I'm reflecting on. And maybe I've inhabited a persona during the day because of what I'm doing and that seems to come out. So as you say, I love, you know, they say when you say, you know, I surprise myself because I find that because I think, who wrote that? You know, as I'm almost as I'm writing it, because I think I was not aware that that was there. <laughs> Whereas later on in the day, I don't get that same sense of surprise. Should we talk a little bit about, about structured journaling? What, what does that look like? Let's go there because structured journaling is one of my favorites and it's a foundational element of my morning routine most mornings. And it was certainly one of the elements that 
enabled me to really shift my own life for myself when I was struggling. Uh, and there's a huge body of evidence around. And so I suppose structured journaling might well be about doing the opposite of what you're trying to do with free writing, which is to go with the speed of your thought processes and allow a stream of consciousness. And this is actually about slowing things down and being more intentional. And so there's no right and wrong as to the kind of questions or reflections that you might use in your structured journaling. But we suggest that things like a reflection on gratitude. So today I am grateful for and stopping to really think this is not a speed exercise. So when I train executives and leaders around this, I say that is not a speed exercise. It's not who can write five things the quickest. This is about really sensing into the things you feel grateful for and writing them down in a more descriptive, meaningful way that helps to re-evoke those feelings for you. And that's a super powerful place to start because it suddenly shifts the whole of our mindset away from what am I not happy with, what don't I like, to actually what do I appreciate and what do I already have. So I think one of the quotes we use in the book from Melody Beattie around gratitude is gratitude turns what we have into enough, which I think is a beautiful place to start your day. So among prompts you recommend in the book, there's today I'm grateful for, today I'm looking forward to, today I commit to, Yeah, this gets to goal setting, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence, right, that goal setting helps us feel more in control, perform better, and just get more done, be more intentional and focused. And so is this something that you would do in your, in your structured journaling each morning is, is basically set out a certain set of, a certain number of achievable goals? And, and what are the characteristics of the goals that we're looking to set down? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I, I guess what I like about this sort of sentence stem of today I commit to is it's quite open. So you could interpret it in the context of writing really clear goals, things you want to achieve, things that are specific, that we can measure the impact of, that they're achievable, that they feel relevant, realistic, that there's a sort of timing to them. So we might want to be, particularly if we're someone who lacks focus, we might want to be very, very clear about that kind of goal setting. But today I commit to, you could also interpret more around how you're going to show up. So for me, it cuts into one of our other practices. We talk about the to-be list. So sometimes I'd say, you know, today I commit to being you know, present in all of the meetings that I have, to being well-prepared, yeah. to being enthusiastic. And so it might combine a, a, a mixture of ways I'm going to be and how I'm going to actually be in my being, yeah. as well as things I'm going to do in my doing. And certainly for me, that commit to, I would use that particularly to write down things that I knew that I might otherwise allow to slip off my agenda. So the things that I don't really like doing, the things that scare me a bit, the things that I tend to avoid, and that process, we know that a process of setting a clear intention and writing it down dramatically increases people's probability of following through and actually delivering on that. I've heard the 2B list reference, but I hadn't. it's not something I'd ever really engaged in. And you actually offer in the book a range of, of adjectives that you might 
select from, if they don't come to mind, yeah. right? I, I need to be focused. I need to be assertive. I need to be empathetic. I need to be patient. And based on your goals for the day in front of you, you might have a slightly different aspiration for how you want to behave. Your to-be list is going to change each day to some degree. It also takes account of maybe those those transitions from work to personal life, that you might have a really full-on, busy day, very stressful, very important meetings, and then you're going out and seeing your kids play football or meet friends, and you don't want to take that same professional, assertive <laughs> agenda, that persona, and so it's thinking, okay, how do I switch? How do I want to be when I'm with my friends? How do I want to be when I have that date night with my partner? How do I want to be when I get home and, and my kids are really excited to see me? Do I still want to be in work mode playing hardball? Or do I want to be fun? Do I want to be playful? Do I want to be affectionate? Do I want to be attentive? And I think that intentional shift can be so powerful because we can take our previous behaviors with us without thinking about it. And then afterwards we think, I didn't really enjoy that because I didn't allow myself to enjoy it because I was still in work mode. Coming up after the break, we hear from Next Big Idea Club curator, Daniel Pink. Here's my extremely unexciting morning routine. We'll be right back. Have you been feeling the effects of stress, burnout, or anxiety at work? Workplace culture is changing, but we're not done yet. Listen to the Anxious Achiever podcast to rethink the relationship between your career and your mental health. Hear stories from psychologists, entrepreneurs, even athletes and celebrities. Learn how they balance success and ambition with staying mentally healthy and walk away with practical advice you can implement today. Get the Anxious Achiever wherever you find your podcasts. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. My approach to my days was pretty dramatically changed by a book called When, The Scientific Studies of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. Yeah. You're familiar with it? Yeah. And he's one of our four curators of the Next Big Idea Club, as you know. What that book caused me to much better appreciate and start to track in my own daily experience is how profoundly my focus and my ability to get things done and my willpower erodes over the course of the day. Yeah. Certainly, certainly into the afternoons, and then maybe you have see a rise again in the late afternoons. And so this caused me to be much more protective of the first three or four hours of the day. I've, I've realized that 80% of the critical things I need to get done, I get done in that period of time. Yeah. So from a scheduling perspective, I'm much more protective of those early hours. And then I've also come to appreciate another point Dan makes in when, is that as you're in the mid-afternoon, when you're at a low in terms of focus, you actually can be better at doing things like free association and brainstorming. It's a great time for meetings, uh, generating new ideas, but you're probably less likely to do the deep analytical work. 
and understanding those really meaningful changes in, in our capabilities over the course of a day for me, has been quite profound. And so what I really try to do with my goal setting is basically have and it's a smaller, more achievable set of a small number of highly important things that I'm going to knock out in the morning and then treat the rest as kind of extra credit. And there's always a lot of things we don't anticipate. That's part of the problem. But when I try to put times next to activities, I end up quite discouraged because I rarely, <laughs> I rarely execute it as I'd like to. Absolutely. And I guess one of the things in that is that we need to allow some breathing space, ideally, in our schedules on the anticipation that there will be things that we don't anticipate coming up. But as you say, playing to when we work best or produce best on different things is really transformational. Well, I actually reached out to Dan Pink this morning as I was furiously preparing uh, for our conversation. And I asked him, I said, Dan, you know, it's been a few years since you wrote when. I'm, I'm interested to know how you spend your days. And here's what he said. Here's my extremely unexciting morning routine. I don't wake up early or really late. I wake up between about 7 and 7.30. Uh, on most days, I shower almost immediately, which really does help me wake up. On many days, I actually try to get some light, some morning sun for 5 or 10 minutes. I often do that by standing on this teeny tiny papal balcony that's outside of my bedroom. I know that I should wait 60 minutes or so before I have my first cup of coffee. I wrote about that in when I frequently do not follow my own advice. So I go downstairs, I gulp a couple of cups of coffee, usually two decent sized cups of coffee, small breakfast, you know, usually just Greek yogurt or maybe it's a little bit of a granola when I'm feeling kind of wacky. And uh, I also read parts of newspapers. I am the last person on the planet who still subscribes to print newspapers, three of them, in fact. So I read a few of that just to sort of get my mind going. But I try to get into my office, which is the refurbished garage behind my house by about 8.30. Uh, on writing days, I give myself a word count. Nothing massive, maybe 600 words, depending on where I am in a project, sometimes more. Um, and I don't do anything else until I hit my number. Sometimes I do that by 10 a.m., other times it's noon or 12.30 or worse, but I don't do anything else until I've reached that magic figure. I don't even bring my phone with me into the office. I try mightily not to answer email. Once I've reached my daily quota, I am liberated to do other stuff. Then I come back and I do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next because consistency beats intensity. All right, Toby and Kate, what do we think of Dan Pink's schedule? Well, I would say given how successful Dan is and the <laughs> amazing contributions he's made to the world, I'm not going to criticize his schedule because it's obviously working for him. And I think that's very much our approach is find what works for you. We didn't ever want to set out a rigid or prescriptive approach. And so we we back everything up by science but as the, you know the science is always going to be people who are who are at either end of you know of the bell curve who it either really really works for or doesn't work for at all and so it's work it's experimenting what works for you and he's found something that works for him and that may change though you know it, that works for him now but maybe five ten years if he has different priorities maybe he's he'll have a different routine and maybe something like meditation and journaling is more interesting I think maybe after he listens to this podcast episode, he may give the journal like a try. I would love to think that we had influenced Dan Pink. 
<laughs> He's a scientifically minded fellow. I, and uh, yeah. I think journaling strikes me as something that, that most of us could benefit. Meditation, as you say, is a practice you recommend and that many people really benefit from. Do you see meditation as something that is more beneficial in the morning? Or would you say, do it whenever it fits your schedule? It's an interesting one. I personally find it's more beneficial in the morning, partly because I think you're riding on that liminal zone between sleep and the mind having woken up and really ramped up and engaged fully in the day. Because I find if I try and meditate in the day, I can meditate again later evening. It's much harder for me to settle and to really rein my focus in, my concentration in. I also think the morning is helpful because I know that if I don't meditate in the morning, I will have the intention of meditating. And unless I actually make an appointment with myself, you know, put it in my diary, this is when I'm going to do it, it doesn't happen. I get to the end of the day and go, oh, I didn't meditate today. And this is precisely, I think, the importance of the morning schedule that you're getting to in this book, is that the things that we schedule, that we make rote, repeatable rituals every morning of our lives, there's a very high probability that once we get that into the algorithm of how we start the day, mm -hmm. we're gonna do it. Whereas if, if you schedule something for the afternoon, the probability drops precipitously, at least for me. And for everyone it does, because other things get in the way. I mean, we start to be pushed and pulled around by all of the demands on us. We don't live in isolation. We live in relationship. We have other needs to serve other than our own as we get pulled into our day. But what we can do is to create some time for ourselves to do the things that we know are going to help us first thing in the morning. And, and meditation, as you say, can be a really valuable part of that. Meditation strikes me as a practice that is somewhat binary in that, in that there are, I know many people whose lives are transformed by meditation. And I also know a decent number of people who just have tried and just cannot get it to get it to take. Is it your view that everyone on the planet could benefit from meditating or do you see it as a tool that, that maybe is more valuable for some people? I would say that everyone would benefit from this shift in in sort of consciousness. I often talk to people and they'll say, yeah, I can't meditate. But when they describe the experience they have and the presence they have of walking their dogs in the woods, I'll say to them, that's a mindfulness meditation that you're doing. There are some slight tweaks to that to amplify the benefits, but meditation doesn't have to be sitting with your legs crossed. And I think I've got a slightly different take on it as well, which is that one of the things that we know we are becoming de-skilled at is focused attention through things like our smartphones that constantly distract us. We're used to constant um, jumping around. Yeah. And one of the things we're doing with meditation is training, or certainly some forms of meditation, is training our attentional control. And I think I tell this story in the book, but I think one of the reasons that people say they can't take to meditation is because they think that in order for it to be having any use, you need to be somehow reaching this state of nirvana where you've got a totally still and silent mind. But that really isn't the case. For most people, when they endeavour to meditate, what they are be really getting the learning from is that process of having the intention to focus on something, 
our mind getting distracted, getting lost in a train of thought, noticing that distraction, that train of thought, bringing it back to the focus of our intention, which might be our breath, non-judgmentally. And that whole process of focusing, getting distracted, refocusing, getting distracted again, refocusing again, all of that is your meditation practice, not just the moments of clarity, silence and stillness. And I say to people, it's called a practice, not a perfect. Let's talk about exercise, um, which, you know, if we think of the morning as this kind of sacred space where we can pick a small number of things and make sure that they happen, I have learned begrudgingly over the course of many years that if I run every single morning, my brain works better, I'm calmer, I'm just, it, it positively impacts my mood, and I can do it sometimes in, like this morning, I, I, I was under a little time pressure this morning preparing to talk with you all, and so I did a 10-minute series of six sprints, and in those 10 minutes, my entire day is transformed. It strikes me that this is one of the the most powerful tools that we have. What we believe and offer is, again, not a one-size-fits-all. So for you, you've learned that that running and really pumping your body up works. I think what is important for people is that they do something that connects them with their bodies. Many of us have learned to live in ways that are quite disembodied. We almost operate as if all we are as a human is something from the neck up and we engage a lot of our brain and our thinking. And so something that connects us with our body, but also gets our body moving to start to limber us up, to start to maybe shake off some of the sleepiness, shake off some of the stress, are likely to make us fitter for the day ahead. So we're not fitness and exercise gurus. And maybe this will appeal to Dan Pink then. Some of our, you know, suggestions around exercise are things like dancing to one of your favorite songs in the morning. You know, it's exercise for those that don't like traditional exercise, but things that get you up, moving, physically tuned in, connected. Yeah. And I think it's that. It's getting moving. So, you know, I work with a lot of clients who are bereaved or have serious or life-limiting illness. So movement may be difficult for them. And so it's it's finding what you can do. So for some people that might be rather than going for a run, it might be just going for a walk. And that walk might be walking to, you know, if you have a garden, walking to the end of your garden and back. You know, that might be enough, but it's just something that starts to get the blood circulating. And we know that that motion shifts emotion as you said you know you when you run you notice the difference i know if i don't do a morning walk or morning yoga i notice the difference not just in how my body feels but how my mind works and how my emotions are it really does make such a big difference and so it's you know it, one of the practices we include in there is making your bed which can seem people think movement but actually for some people that's quite a that's quite a physical act, you know, plumping the pillows, shaking the shit. That might be all that they're capable of doing. So they get the movement. They also get the sense of achievement. So it's being realistic. If you have weighted blankets, maybe the making of the bed <laughs> would, would be a little more of a workout. You could have a... Oh, yeah, I like that. I've realized if I'm listening to a book or a podcast or taking a phone call, I could be walking. Yes. And, and so I've started to I've started to take phone calls uh, on a walk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's, you know, very small, easy things. And you feel better. 
Absolutely. And I've said that to clients, if they say, I haven't got time, I'll say, well, could you schedule your calls? Could you do them outside? Could you walk? So that you're using that time to get the daylight, to get some exercise, but you're still getting the work if you feel you can't find that half an hour otherwise. This brings up a topic that I think is relevant for so many of us, which is when we're talking about changing our morning schedule, which might be something that that some listeners and certainly I'm considering here, any kind of change, any kind of consistent change to our to our lives is not easy to accomplish. But you have this wonderful metaphor about walking through a field of grass. Yeah. Right. And and how the changing behavior is initially challenging, but becomes easier. Do you want to share that one? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I use this often uh, with clients that I'm working with. And it's this idea that uh, we have these well-worn paths within our brain. And so it's like imagining yourself walking into a field and in the field there's long grass but there's a clear path worn ahead of it and so the automatic thing to do is to walk down that well-worn path but if we want to do something different we have to actively very clearly make that choice at that choice point to walk a different path to move towards a different destination through treading a new path. And of course, the first time we do that, that's going to be really difficult because there's going to be no pathway there. So we're going to have to start to really forge that pathway and we're going to have to be quite committed to going through moving the grass down. But the next time we move into the field, the well-worn path is still going to be very attractive and easy to go down, but there will start to be a faint line of a new path. And if day after day, time after time, we start to choose that new path, over time, it will become well-worn. And in fact, the grass will grow back over the old route. And that's exactly what's happening in our brain with the neural pathways. You know, we used to have sayings like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We used to think we were sort of fully formed and fixed as adults by a certain point in time. We absolutely know, I'm sure your listeners know, that that is not the case, that we understand that through neuroplasticity, um, our brains are changing all the time and we have the capacity to change and learn and grow throughout our whole lifetime. And so that's a really hopeful thing to remember. And it will take more effort at first than it takes to then maintain it. I think the process in the brain is referred to as myelination. Yes. Right. That basically when you when you build new circuits, myelin starts to insulate those pathways. The more you do it, the more insulated those pathways are. And it's precisely as you describe, it becomes a kind of automated circuit. So, yeah. so when you think about like a a great athlete, a great tennis player's serve or backhand or whatever. There are actually like 40 different motions in the backhand of a tennis player, but you do it enough times and it becomes a single action. And that's true of everything, and that's true of our mornings. Woke up, fell out of bed, to comb across my head. So you're hydrating, exercising, and journaling, but are you hugging? And if so, are you doing it right? When we come back, Toby and Kate explain why a long embrace is a great way to start your day. Would you like to access a summary of a groundbreaking new book every single weekday created by the authors themselves in 12 minutes of audio or four minutes of text? How about beautiful video and audio e-courses? Did I mention ad-free versions of this podcast? You're probably thinking, don't tease me, Rufus. Such a thing could not possibly exist. 
Well, I am not teasing, folks. You can find all those things and more in the next Big Idea app. Just go to your app store. You can do this right now. Just pause this recording, click on the app store, and search for Next Big Idea. If you enjoy this podcast, you will love the app. Join our community, and you'll discover a bunch of bonuses. Listen to this podcast 24 hours before the general public. Enjoy in-depth e-courses based on the most game-changing books of the year. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Let's talk about hugging. Yeah. Hugging. Now, there is a physical activity that I think most of us can get behind uh, that is not for most of the, that doesn't take a huge amount of discipline, really, but it does require most of the time another willing participant. Uh, what are the benefits of hugging? Well, we know that as humans, we're wired for connection. And the benefits of hugging is that, you know, it increases the levels of those positive hormones. So, um, the one that's often talked about is oxytocin, which is the connection, the bonding hormone, which is most commonly seen with, you know, uh, between breastfeeding mothers and infants. But actually, the experience of physical connection to another being elevates oxytocin for all of us, but it also reduces our, you know, the stress response and it leaves us feeling really good. But we're not talking about those sort of social hugs where it's, you know, a few sessions, seconds, and then you're sort of, you know, patting someone's back. We're talking of um, one minute, so 60 seconds, which on the face of it doesn't sound very long, but when you have that 60 second hug, it's much longer than you realize most of us do socially. Kids do it naturally and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll come and hug you and it's like, koala you know they just they just hang on and it's really beautiful <laughs> so it's that point where you sort of feel the release you almost feel the release of the chemicals mm. and you you feel yourself relaxing into the hug as you say it's really important that both parties are willing participants in the hug what i love is the the sort of famous psychologist virginia satir said that we need four hugs a day for survival we need eight hugs a day for maintenance and we need 12 hugs a day for growth. And I'll often say to clients, how many hugs have you had today? And if they haven't got young kids, they'll say, I don't think I've had any. And so, you know, actually, even if you introduce a few, you'll notice the difference. And we do talk about how you can hug yourself. So you can get those self-soothing benefits from the self-hug. It's not exactly the same, but has a similar effect of, of soothing ourselves and bringing us that, those benefits of the relaxation. Well, it's nice to know that there's always at least one willing recipient of a hug, and that's yourself, right? We could all, yeah, we always, I hope so, so. somebody's got to love us. We can, we, we can start with ourselves. We're, we're, all, we're always available. And, and I, I love how you say it doesn't matter who you hug. As long as they're a willing participant, of course. I think that's a very yes. important detail. I love your low standards for the huggy. It really doesn't matter who it is. Um, and they'll benefit from the hug too. 60 seconds to me though is a long, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like some people might get the wrong idea. <laughs> well, I think if you're clear what the intention is, I've been on a training course where we did a three minute hug. And if you think wow. 60 seconds, three minutes feels like an eternity, but... The really interesting thing is the end of that, bearing in mind we were all strangers, you feel this huge connection to someone and then you really have an interest in wanting to speak to them and get to know them. It's a really powerful way of creating a really physical connection to someone. So I think if you're going to hug for 60 seconds, say to someone, this is what we're going to do. 
anticipate the first time, first few times. It may feel awkward, but lean into that and be curious to discover the benefits. And I guess if it is a hug as part of your morning routine, you'd hope it was someone that you had some level of closeness of relationship with that is around you early in the morning. Yes, yes, that's helpful. Well, well, there are all sorts of disadvantages to having children, but I will say they're very good with hugging. Yeah. As you said, they yeah. can be little koala bears, less so as they become teenagers in my experience. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. I mean, it's, it's a very rare thing to get a hug from my... They're grizzly bears as teenagers, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, spouses are usually pretty good for the hugging unless they perceive you to have behaved badly and, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or you're in the doghouse and then there's, there are fewer hugs that are available. Now I can hug myself, so I, I have options. This is great. So turning to mirror work. Now, I was predisposed to believe in hugging as something that we all should do more of. Mirror work, I'm going to be honest with you, this was in the category of something that I sort of saw as maybe like a, a romantic comedy kind of humor scene, right? Yeah. Where somebody's uh, staring in the mirror and, and saying, I love and accept you just the way you are. However, yesterday, I thought I really have to put this to the test. And I went and spent, you know, five minutes staring at myself in the mirror without criticism or judgment, which is that for some of us, that's a process. Mm -hmm. And then repeated, I love and accept you, Rufus, just the way you are. You know, that actually was, uh, there was an element of amusement and that maybe that's my defense mechanisms kicking in, but I did it again with some shaving cream on my cheeks and my chin and it did produce a warm feeling. And we then dug into some of the research because I, again, I came at this with a little bit of skepticism, but it does seem that the data backs this up. It does. And I mean, you know, for many of us, you know, particularly with today's really quite punitive standards around how we look, the only time we look in, in a mirror is to check that our appearance is perfect. And so, you know, the ideology behind mirror work is something quite different. It's really about seeing and acknowledging our own humanity and loving the person that we are stripped away from all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really powerful mirror work. And it is one of those that you think this just sounds really woo-woo when someone says to you, I'm going to look in a mirror and talk to myself. But what struck me is when you talked about the hugging and you said, oh, even if there's no one else around, I can find someone who who's a willing participant. But interestingly, for some people, they would really struggle with that because they may not feel that they were lovable, that they were worthy of hugging, that actually maybe it is harder for them to hug themselves than for someone else to hug them because they're constantly seeking that external validation. And so where mirror work is helpful is that it's allowing us to meet ourselves as we are and to explore the contents of the mind. So to some extent, mirror work can work really well with the free writing because when we look in the mirror, all sorts of thoughts and judgments and beliefs come up. So it's a really helpful tool to identify what's there. And what we're trying to do is get to a state where we can look in the mirror, look ourselves in the eye and accept what we see. That's not to say that we don't want to improve and grow and make changes, but actually in order to do that, we have to accept the reality of what it is. Now, I know when I first did mirror work, I noticed that I was looking at myself out the sort of the corner of my eye and I was didn't really want to turn full face. And I know with clients I've worked with who've used me, it can be a really powerful experience. And getting to the point of being able to say positive things to yourself can be transformational. The psychologist Carl Rogers famously said it was 
only when I began to accept myself exactly as I was that I was able to change. Let's move to affirmations, which I guess is a bit of an extension of mirror work, right? I guess part of what's happening is that a lot, so many of us engage in negative self-talk. And there's a lot of evidence that these cycles of these ways that we speak to ourselves in our heads that are uh, cyclically negative, profoundly negatively impact our experience and our outlook. Yeah. And unfortunately yeah. are subject to that same process of myelinization of a kind of circuitry in the brain. And affirmations seem to be one of the ways that, I mean, this may also trigger my, my sort of skepticism or discomfort, but it appears to be a proven way to help combat this cycle of negative self-talk, is that right? Yes, but I think what's really interesting is a lot of misconception about affirmations. What we're not talking about is toxic positivity, that actually for that positive self-talk to be helpful, it has to be relatable and realistic for you. If your life is really disastrous, you can't pay your heating, you know, you can't buy food going, everything's amazing, I have plenty of food to eat, I have, you know, I have plenty of money to pay my bills, we're not talking about that level. We're talking about replacing the negative self-talk with some maybe some positive, or it might be balanced, and balanced might mean positive for you because everything we say inside our heads is an affirmation. What we're suggesting is you can start to introduce some alternatives that gives you maybe a bit of breathing space and allows you to maybe steer your rudder a few degrees in a different direction. What we're talking about is just starting to talk to ourselves in ways that's going to set us up to have the kind of day that we want to have ahead. And so if we do wake up with something going round in our head, which might be like, oh, no, I'm so tired and, you know, I, I can't face what I've got ahead of me or, you know, I'm going to have to go and do these things to just start to think, what could you say to yourself that would help you to feel better and to help you feel more resource for the day ahead? So you're not saying, I'm a tiger, I can conquer anything, <laughs> you know, and that's, I guess that, that's where the cliches come from, don't they? It's sort of pastiches and comedies. But it might be saying something like, I trust myself and I am able to cope with everything that comes my way today. It strikes me that the great nuance is, when you were talking earlier about toxic positivity, is that there is a, there's a subset of negative emotions that are giving us useful feedback from the world. Yeah, of course. And I think often what it comes down to is, is so often we do something that our behavior that we then regret, we have the negative emotions that are helpful because they help us reroute and make amends. But it's when we then get down to internalizing those and rather than saying, I didn't bring my all, I was a bit rude to that person, we then say, I'm a terrible person, I'm really bad, I'm useless, I fuck up every project. Sorry, I don't know if I'm okay to swear. <laughs> You're fine. Okay. Yeah. You know, and that's where I think it can get into the really destructive negative self-talk. So usually the first question to, to ask is, is this thought helpful for me? Is it working for me? Because then you can say, if it's not working, what would be a more workable, more helpful thought to have? Because what happens is if we keep having those negative thoughts repeatedly, they become beliefs about ourselves. Because all a belief is, is, is a thought that we've had repeatedly and consistently. And then we don't even realize we're thinking it. So I'm unattractive. No one will you know, be interested in someone who has 
you know, who's this old or who looks like this, or I'm no good, I can never achieve anything, has become a belief. We don't realize that those thoughts are there. And that's where the balanced alternative thoughts, once we have identified those beliefs, can be helpful in starting to question them. So it allows a space where we go, there's an alternative. So rather than I fail everything, I fail at everything, it might be I can learn and I can do better next time. I did my best. And to answer your question, I mean, all of our emotions are data. Yeah. I sometimes use the analogy for people with the voice inside your head. Imagine that you were in a room with somebody else and they were talking to you in that way. Right. Yeah. Would you, would that be a helpful thing? And would you want to stay around that person or wouldn't you? And so I think there's a bit of a barometer because you might find it helpful if someone said to you, you know what, Rufus, I think you might have upset somebody with the way you said that yesterday, very different from someone who started going, Rufus, you are an absolute idiot. Everyone hates you. You're going to like, you know, lose all of your listeners, you know, and it's all a disaster. And I think that's a differentiation. And it's about what can I learn from this? We are, I'm absolutely not advocating that we ignore, suppress, try to get rid of all of our, because all of our emotions are what make us human and they are useful. Well, and adjacent to the um, positive affirmations there is creative visualizations, which I actually just in the last couple of days after having read this passage in your book, I've tried engaging in and actually found it to be quite interesting and, and useful. Do you want to share what that is? What I often will use the analogy, it's what athletes do. You mentioned athletes earlier, that that sense of mental rehearsal, that actually going through a behavior and really imagining yourself, using all of your senses to see yourself there, having that experience in the way that you want it to be. So if it's your, you've been working on your backhand, you'll practice it, but you'll also spend time really imagining how does that feel in the body? What do I notice in terms of the thoughts in my mind? What's the different qualities? And that we know that the, with the research that when we really strongly imagine something, the brain responds in exactly the same way as if we're actually doing it. And what's fascinating is that if we're imagining something physical and we're moving part of the body, those muscles on a very subtle level are activated. And we do it naturally, you know, as we, you know, we daydream, we fantasize. And it's really just using that imaginative capacity that we have as humans in a positive way to both see situations going well, but also maybe seeing ourselves dealing with the difficult situations. So I know uh, I have a, a friend who is a, an elite athlete and she will use it to focus on overcoming the sticky points. So those difficult bits where she knows she struggles. So yes, she'll imagine crossing the finish line and, and the euphoria and turning back and seeing that you're first, but also those bits where you struggle, where you stumble, how you overcome those. So you're rehearsing dealing with the challenges as, as well as celebrating the triumphs. And if it works for Olympic athletes, it might also work with throwing a wonderful dinner party. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever it is, right? I mean, this is effectively, this is one of the many tools in our toolboxes to to help us mentally prepare for helping us prepare in the morning to have the kind of day that we'd like to have. And what's really fascinating is so many of us use that capacity negatively, that we're thinking about that dinner party and we spend a lot of time thinking, I'm going to burn the souffle or 
I'm going to spill something or this yeah. person's not going to get on with that person or the dog is going to bite someone. And so we use that. And then by the time the dinner party comes, we've got ourselves really, really stressed. So actually taking that skill and rather than rehearsing what all the disasters that our mind is bringing up that could be, we can actually focus on how, you know, how do I want it to go and how do I want to feel having that experience? How do I want others to feel? So I guess we're bringing in the to-be list as well, as well as the goals and the mapping the day. So it's a, it's a really powerful tool. Fantastic. And do you all want to share with our listeners what the acronym, so the book is Rise and Shine, and shine is not just a word, it's an acronym, and it stands for a lot of the, the tools that you offer in your book. Yes. Yeah, so, so shine is an acronym and it stands for the five elements or ingredients that we think make up for most people a really balanced, rounded morning routine to set you up to have the kind of day that you want to have and the kind of life that you actually want to have. So S stands for silence. So we include six different practices to help you create stillness, peace, reflection at the start of the day. Some of the things we've talked about like meditation and journaling. H is for happiness, so practices and techniques to help you to begin the day feeling confident, uplifted, in a positive mood. And we've talked about mirror work, positive affirmations, hugging, those would fall within that. I is for intention. So this is around how we can, at the start of the day, do some things to help us to shape our own day rather than letting the day shape and create us, to drive our own chariot and harness the horses. Um, and so things like goal setting, to-be lists, creative visualisation, mapping our day. N is for nourishment. And in this, we're talking about Yes, what we feed our body, water and healthy breakfast, but also how we nourish our mind and our soul with things that bring us joy, that keep us learning at the start of our day. And then he is for exercise. And we talked about things that connect us with our body and get us up and moving. Well, Kate and Toby Oliver, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy lives to be with us. I, uh, I had a creative visualization this morning as I was walking off my run of having a, a lively, warm, human, useful, funny, engaged conversation with you two. And I feel like that's exactly what happened. Maybe you were visualizing it too, but thank you so much. <laughs> that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Rufus. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Kate and Toby Oliver's new book is called Rise and Shine, How to Transform Your Life Morning by Morning. You can pick up a copy wherever books are sold, including in the Next Big Idea app, where you can also hear the Oliver siblings summarize the book's five key insights in just 12 minutes. All you have to do is go to the Apple or Android app store and search for the Next Big Idea. Once you've got the app installed, check out the beautiful video e-course Daniel Pink made for when the scientific secrets of perfect timing. This book really did fundamentally change the way that I plan my days. His course is available exclusively in the next Big Idea app. Do you have a friend or loved one who struggles to wake up on the right side of the bed? Why not share this episode with them? We'd also be grateful if you'd leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I know every podcast you listen to asks for this, but there is a reason. It really does help us get the word out about the show. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Jason Freeman. 
The team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network shines morning, noon, and night. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.